Welcome to Arts Alive, focusing on the working artists of California's Central Coast. I'm your host, Brian Asher Alhadif. Joining me in the studio today is Dr. Jill Anderson. Jill is the founder of Opera San Luis Obispo, which she started in 1985 and directed until 2008. She's also a founder and co-artistic director of the Canzona Women's Ensemble, a 24-voice women's chorus here on the Central Coast. Welcome, Jill Anderson. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about how you arrived here at the Central Coast and how long you've been. We arrived 37 years ago. We moved up here from L.A. My husband was joining a medical practice up here, and I always remember the number of years because that's my son's age. He was born three weeks before we came here. And prior to that, uh, my husband was at UCLA Medical School, and I was very active in the musical community in L.A., singing with the L.A. Master Chorale and as a ringer with the New York City Opera Chorus and at various church jobs. And so in a way, it was hard for me to come here, but I quickly tried to integrate myself into the musical community. Did you know about what you were getting yourself into on the way up? Did you know about, cause, I mean, and the reason why I ask that is I'm also a California native, native from the Los Angeles area, and I never really even knew about San Luis Obispo until about 2009, which was a year before Opera San Luis Obispo. I even knew about them. Wow. Well, I, I knew a little bit. The one thing I did know was that they had a Mozart festival because a lot of my friends from the L.A. Master Chorale right. sang in the Mozart festival and got hired up in the summer. And a summer later, here I was singing with them again, but in my newly adopted town of San Luis Obispo. Um, yeah, it was hard to adjust at the time, but I knew that there was some culture here. And, of course, we've only seen it expand in the last 37 years. And much in part through the innovations that you have uh, founded here on the Central Coast. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about the vast diversity of your career. Okay, happy to. I came up here intending to launch myself as a voice teacher, and I started doing that, and that was you know, somewhat successful. And of course, I also wanted to sing. So I auditioned for anything that seemed appropriate. I did continue to commute down to LA and Santa Barbara area to do gigs because I needed to keep up my craft, of course. So I really started out as a singer and voice teacher. But after living here for about a year and after singing in the Mozart Festival Chorus and hearing some of the good voices that we had here on the Central Coast, primarily I have to say female because most of the good male singers can't afford to live here, but good female singers could live here with their spouses, which they did. I realized, hey, I might be able to start a little opera workshop. I hear some voices here that I could cast in scenes. And so that was what brought me to the idea of doing opera. And of course, as you know, subsequently, I, after retiring from the opera uh, 12 years ago, I've founded a women's choir with my friend Cricket Handler, so that's what I'm more immediately involved in now, although, of course, there's always a place in my heart for the opera and for still teaching voice. I have the occasional voice student these days, even though I'm retired from Cuesta. That sounds like a very active and diverse musical life, and I should probably remind our listeners that you are a soprano. Yes. And that was your doorway into singing and following a career in singing, teaching singing, and eventually founding an opera company that yeah. is still alive and vibrant today. Right. It's But it's all, everything that I have done and devoted my life to is in the field of vocal music. And primarily, I would say, classical vocal music. I've done the occasional musical and a little bit of jazz, but really primarily 
classical vocal music and opera chorus, both in L.A. and in San Francisco, and and producing the opera here, directing it, casting the singers. Um, and uh, you mentioned auditioning earlier. Um, auditions play a part in all of that, whether you're trying out for a church choir or for a choral ensemble or for an opera chorus or for an opera lead. Auditions are a big part of that. And so the, the whole vocal scene is what engages me. And the, the audition process is such a critical point for any singer uh, or actor for that matter, but particularly with regards to singing, what are some of the uh, tips you would have for singers with regards to audition? What is that you look for during an audition? Are there ticks that come up that you think, oh, that wish you wish you didn't have done that? Uh, <laughs> or, you know, what, what sort of things are you looking for in an audition beyond the demonstration of applicable talent? I think it's a lot of it is the persona that the person presents. You can even be taken in by a person who has maybe an inferior voice, but who presents themselves very well. So I always tell my students, they ask me, do you think I have what it takes? Do you think I can get this, make this audition, get a part? And I say, well, really only you know that. I don't know how tough you are, how, how confident you are in yourself, how well you can present yourself. Of course, you have to have the technique, you have to have the goods, and you have to show them off, and you have to make wise choices in, number one, what you wear to the audition, number two, what you choose to sing for the audition, what that's going to show the people listening to you and uh, looking at you. It, it's, it's, it's a whole package. It's not just one thing. You can have the most gorgeous voice in the world, and unless there's really a connoisseur out there, they might pass you off if you don't present yourself well. So it, it's it's more than one aspect. So going to an audition, it, you really should need to look your best. Oh, let, yeah. let, let's talk a little bit about that. And I appreciate you being specific, what you wear and what you choose to sing. Those are definitely things that I notice when I'm on the other side of, of that course. usually six by eight table. Um, and uh, what kind of things do we need to wear in an audition? I think you need to look pres uh, professional. Pr professional. I always tell women to wear a, a, an attractive dress. It shouldn't be too short. It shouldn't be too gaudy. It should be tailored and show them off and look comfortable and, and just look their best. They should wear, uh, forgive me, I think they should wear hose and high heels. I think it makes them look more the role that they might want to play. You, they're going to want to play somebody like Carmen or Tosca, and so they better look like a a beautiful woman, if they can, right. <laughs> unless they're a character singer. And men, I don't know that they always have to wear a jacket, but they should wear slacks and at least a nice shirt if they have a jacket. Yes, I don't think you need to wear a formal or a tux for an audition. That's mm -hmm. overdoing it. Right. And and just to play devil's advocate a little bit, what does it mean when we when you experience a good singer that did not put that detail in? Let's say a fantastic... Uh, a tenor that comes in in essentially, you know, shirts untucked, loafers, maybe even no socks on, but does a great job. What is that? What's the overall message that, that you're left with? Well, I, you just have to decide if they're moldable, I guess. I mean, if, they, if they've if they really got the goods, if they really have the voice you want and need, I, I you will overlook those things. But, you know, if if you're trying to put together a package, you want every aspect of that package to be in order, I think. I, I totally agree with that, and that, thank you for articulating that way. 
Um, in your life now and, uh, and throughout your history, how have you gone about addressing society, culture, and historical context in your programming choices? And, you know, take a stab at any <laughs> one of those and whatever seems to pop. Well, um, in opera, there's, there's very specific repertoire that your audience wants to hear, as you know well. So I don't know how daring we can always be in opera, especially if you're only doing one or two shows a year. I think if you're doing eight or ten shows a year, like the big companies, right. you can afford to do some offbeat repertoire that might not be as well known to your audiences. But, for example, with Cansona, Cricket and I try... Um, we have always tried to include diverse repertoire. We have done many, many languages. I wrote some down here. We have done um, lots of ethnicities. We've sung in Arabic. We've sung in Hispanic uh, languages. We've sung in Macedonian, Latvian, Tibetan. Um, and we do try, well, we definitely make an emphasis on using women com uh, music composed by women mm -hmm. because we are a group of women singing uh, music written for women's voices. We do sing the great white male composers, but we also try to sing as many of the good all colors of women composers that we can. We are aware that, in general, a lot of choral conductors tend to look at spirituals and things like that in deference to our African-American heritage. We probably need to look deeper in the future. I think we've acknowledged that. Mm -hmm. and really culturally get to know not only the music but the cultures behind these pieces of music that we choose. So it almost feels like, and, and I, I think this is a, a, a natural observation, that there's a, a difference between the audience in a Canzona concert and, let's say, a La Traviata concert. Is there, or maybe the expectation is a little wider or different. Is that? Well, I, I do think that Choral music is probably a little more esoteric. It's a little more specialized. It's probably got a smaller fan base. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, it's a very vital and important art form, in my opinion. I just adore all kinds of choral music. But, yeah, the audience for opera, it's it's bigger. It's much more sophisticated. They want the, the bells and whistles. They want the sets and costumes and the lighting, and they want the orchestra, and may, maybe they want a little dance thrown in there, you know, when it's called for. Um, <laughs> if you only saw Jill's <laughs> eyebrow raise uh, when she said that. <laughs> um, anyhow, they, they, they get a bigger, more glamorous package, and it's probably a, a larger audience uh -huh. for sure. Right, right. No, that's 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 interesting. And what was it like for you to make the transition from developing and starting a, a massive grand opera that performs at the Pack with full orchestra and internationally acclaimed artists to reducing in scope to this area, women only and chorus? What was that? What was that like? Well, it was relaxing for one thing. It's not nearly as much work. And I'm sharing it with another person, so that's wonderful. Cricket Handler, my co-director. Um, and for me, it was eye-opening because all the choral music I had done had been um, SATB, that is, uh, mixed men and women both. I had not done, except in college, women's glee club. I had not done just women's music. I didn't realize how much was out there and how rich that field is. So mm -hmm. it was almost a reining in, but then an expanding of my horizons in another direction. So I've been very grateful for it. It's, it's opened my eyes to a lot of wonderful music. 
And when I when I think about what it must be like to co-direct an organization, it starts to make me have these fantasies of being in an Italian restaurant where there's two equal chefs in the back. <laughs> and I, I can only imagine that would be a disaster in most situations. How do you co-direct with, uh, with a, an equal sort of power source behind uh, a company? How do you do it? What's that relationship like? It is fabulous. It is really fun and fabulous. I mean, we are dear, dear friends, and we're joined at the hip, and... We really respect each other. We do have very different tastes. I will just totally veto something that she really wants to do, but she'll turn around and veto something that I want to do, but then we'll say, oh, but what about this? Oh, yeah, I love that. And we have a very fun method of choosing repertoire. Cricket investigates quite a lot of it. I, I don't. She, she knows the field much better than I do. And so she introduces me to a lot of things. I bring in the few classical pieces that I know and like and, and the composers that I know and like. I like a lot of Renaissance and Baroque and, and Brahms and things like that. And she's up to the minute with all the choral repertoire. She does all the ACDA and all the um, Chorus America and all these uh, organizations. She's brought me into a few conferences, but I'm still woefully lacking in that area. But we sit down and we listen to all these things on YouTube and we listen to recordings and we look at the music and then we make little index cards and we shuffle them around the table and decide which should be our opening, which should be our closing for the first half, which should be our opening for the second half, which should be our closing for the second half, how many do we want to make the ladies memorize, and, and we, we come up with it, and it's, it's so fun. It's like a little puzzle that we solve together. Yeah, that, that sounds really exciting. I imagine it probably is accompanied by some great wine from the region as well. <laughs> no, usually we have coffee. <laughs> oh, really? Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, we both have Nespresso machines, and we, <laughs> we dish each other up cappuccinos and lattes. What comes first? Is it the chicken or the egg? Do you develop a repertoire and then come up with a theme for the concert, or do you feel, it does, does it work the other way? Is it a little bit of both? It's a little bit of both. We... Our board, and particularly our uh, staff, try to force us to choose a theme early on. Mm -hmm. And then we try to find music that will fit into that theme. Sometimes we end up shoehorning in things that really don't quite fit, but we're going to make them fit anyway because we want to do that piece, you know. Right. But we, we try to make it somewhat a thematic concert, like we have had... Um, the caravan, where we did things from more exotic lands, and we had one about for the beauty of the earth, where we did all things about nature, you know, sun, moon, and stars, and the ocean. We had one about phases of women's lives, where we had songs about motherhood and uh, um, childhood and uh, aunts and cousins, and we, we, we find things to shoehorn in. That's fantastic. And during that uh, that creative process, and once you transition from deciding into rehearsals and planning what sort of uh, uh, road markers are there in 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 improving that quality of your creative work how do you know when it's ready to share with the public beyond the fact that obviously we have an end date when the last rehearsal is right. you know how are you sort of navigating and negotiating quality control the, the first step for us in Quality control goes right back to what we were talking about earlier, which is auditions. Mm -hmm. And over the years, uh, we have gotten, we've been fortunate to be able to get little by little even more selective. At the beginning, we we invited people to be in that I knew either from the opera chorus or from vocal arts or master chorale um, or some students. And we do have all age groups. We have people from student age all the way up into their 70s. So that's really wonderful. And um, but 
as some people have quit and we keep having more and more auditions, we find that we are able to be more demanding, get people with voices that we really th think will fit and who have musicianship that we think will be at the level we want for Cansona. So uh, that's our first step of quality control is the people we include in the group. And we just won't take anybody that's not really quite quite up to what we need. Then we have, uh, over 10 years, we've developed a very good rehearsal schedule. We know that in approximately eight to eight and a half weeks, that's our rehearsal period. And we will have, over that period of time, 10 rehearsals plus a retreat. And we don't let people miss more than two rehearsals. If they do, they're not going to be able to do the concert. And we require them to memorize certain pieces, not all of them, like some groups do. But we have these requirements, and we expect the ladies to meet them, and they do. They, they work very hard, and so we get the level of quality we need. And, of course, we've known the concert date right along, so we know we have to work towards that. Right. That sounds like really measurable markers along the yeah, road. Yeah, and if it's not coming along, we will call a sectional rehearsal. We'll say, okay, Altos, you need to set aside some time and work privately. Right, yeah. And then uh, your long-term pianist has been Janice Johnson? Yes. Right. And what's that relationship like with it uh, as a director, sort of observing the relationship between the chorus and perhaps the most valuable person, your accompanist? Well, Janice has been with us from the start. And do you know, you won't believe this, but she was my very first accompanist for the opera. Oh, my when God. When we first did our uh, Rosen Cavalier and Marriage of Figaro at Linnea's Cafe. 1986. Uh, 1985. Oh. <laughs> oh wow. uh, Janice was playing the piano, that uh. old beat-up piano out on the patio. Wow. And um, then she she kind of uh, went off and did other things, and I got Gina German involved, and then she went off and did other things, and then I had Paul Woodring for many years, and um, so I hadn't worked with Janice for a while, but when we started this group, I said, well, you know, I have this old friend, and I think she'd be perfect for this. So, yeah, that's yeah. it's wonderful. And she's willing to work um, privately with the ladies if they, like if we're doing a, a duet or a trio or something mm -hmm. that's not involving the whole group, she's willing to have people come to her house and work with them. So we really value that. Talk to us about how you're involved in different activities during COVID-19. What's, how are you, how are you engaged in the community musically that's a little bit unusual? Well, we're doing lots of Zoom meetings with various people. Cansona is doing Zoom meetings ourselves, and I am leading little vocalizing sessions for the ladies, and we are talking about repertoire. We are going to be participating, that is, Cansona is, in a, a countywide virtual choral concert involving the Cal Poly choirs, the Cuesta College choirs, the Master Chorale, Cansona, and there there could be one or two others that I'm not thinking of. And that's going to be in November. So we have to learn music. We will get soundtracks, and we're going to have to record our parts individually, and they're going to be engineered together. I believe John Knutson from Cuesta is going to do that so that they can all be played simultaneously. Um, as for uh, Cricket and I are attending some other sessions uh, on Zoom. There's one for the pack, and I think you occasionally attend that one where we find out 
what the audience will bear, and we're doing surveys to find out when they're willing to come back to concerts. Cricket and I do one with Morna Edmondson in uh, Vancouver. She, she's the uh, director of Electro Women's Ensemble. And so we talk to other women's ensemble directors and find out what they're doing and how they're rehearsing with their groups. We're getting some ideas about Zoom rehearsals, although those are very unsatisfying. We've talked about rehearsing outdoors, but even that apparently doesn't seem to be safe. Singing seems to be the most unsafe thing that you can do in the performing arts these days because... Or just period. <laughs> yeah, because it, it spews droplets at least six feet away, and so right. we're we're not supposed to do that. Uh, so that's sad. Have you had any um, thoughts about what we're going to take from this experience into the future? And maybe that might be as simple as technology, or how do you feel that we're arts is going to rebound? One thing that's definitely for sure is we all have these unending rivers of energy that. You can put a COVID-19 cap in it, but it's going to overflow in other areas. So what's going to happen when we leave, in, in, in your opinion? How do you feel that we'll, what will we take from this experience? You mean when we have vaccines and we can get back together? Yeah, exactly. I think there'll be great joy. I don't know that we'll change a lot. I would never choose to go back to virtual rehearsals. I mean, that's that's not satisfying. The whole thing is to hear the resonance all around you and to hear your partner's voice in your ear and to tune with it and to make music together and form beautiful chords and and harmonies. This is what we live for and we love, and we love the physical sensation of singing, so we're not going to hold back our singing. I just think we have to get the vaccine and we have to be have some herd immunity and but I think we need to go back to doing exactly what we were doing. I think opera singers have to sing in each other's faces just like they always have. Otherwise there's it doesn't mean anything. You can't be six feet across the stage from somebody and saying I love you and I wanna hold you. I mean it's we've got to go back to what we were doing. Right. It couldn't have been said better. <laughs> uh and Tell us a little bit about maybe some encouragement words that you would have for young singers uh, seeking a career that you might have been seeking in your 20s and what could possibly happen between then. Uh, well, the main thing, and I said it earlier, you have to keep up your craft. Your body is your instrument. You have to keep doing your breathing exercises. You have to keep stretching. You have to keep vocalizing. You've got to keep your technique at a high level. You've got to sing all kinds of music. You've got to sing your arias. You've got to sing your art songs. You've got to sing your exercises. You have to, and you have to keep your body going. You probably want to work out and do sit-ups and, and all kinds of things. That in itself is very important. And I think you have to keep up your spirits. I don't think you should let yourself sit around in your pajamas all the time. I think you should get yourself dolled up, do your hair, put on your makeup, even only your spouse sees it. You have to feel good about yourself as, as a performer. Um, and as and I think you should listen to everything you can. There's all sorts of stuff online. I listen to one or two operas a week through the Met broadcasts or through L.A. Opera has these wonderful living room recitals that I've been tuning into. You can hear somebody in their home doing a 30- or 40-minute recital of wonderful music. I heard Rod Guilfrey. I heard um, Brownlee, whatever his name is, the tenor. I mean, I've just heard all these wonderful singers giving us their art from their homes. And we, we've got to keep doing that. Listen to YouTube. Just don't stop exploring. Jill, how has your career as a teacher been just as valuable and impactful 
in the life of a musical artist? Oh, well, being a teacher is so wonderful because you get to work towards the future. You you have these students in your hands and you want to help them discover what they have inside them and bring that out of them both technically and physically and personally. And so it's it's a great gift to work with students. Plus, you're also getting to spend your time with geniuses like Beethoven, Brahms, Mozart, and Schumann and Schubert. So my life as a teacher was always so rewarding just from the musical aspect, but also the ability to impact the lives of young students who have desires and talents. How long did you know you were going to be a teacher? Was that something that evolved out of your career, or did you always know when you were studying, uh, I'm going to be a teacher someday, so this is something I want to really make sure that I'm aware of throughout my process, your journey? Well, I, I, I did take vocal pedagogy at USC from William Vennard, who was one of the great old pedagogical people, with the idea that maybe if my singing career didn't take off, I could teach. And then, uh, sure enough, my singing career was not a world-class one. It was, uh, I ended up being an ensemble singer, but at a wonderful level. I enjoyed that. But I realized I had to make money in other ways as well. I also had a church job, and I was hearing all the voices around me where I was the, the lead soprano, and I was thinking, I could help that person. I could help that person. So that was kind of when I hung out my shingle, and that was in L.A., I had a job at St. Paul the Apostle in Westwood, and I, I offered to give voice lessons to some of those people in that choir because I thought, I, I can give you a better voice than what you've got. And so that was I was teaching in Hollywood, and then when I moved to L.A., I taught in L.A., and then when I moved up here, I continued teaching. And it's, it, that's been a wonderful part of my career. So it sounds to me like an overarching theme in, in your life has been to remain open to all the different possibilities that could possibly present themselves. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. In fact, one thing you may not know about me is that I started a magical group in L.A., that did uh, was together for probably 23 years, wow. and we did three recordings for the Musical Heritage Society of Italian Renaissance, English Renaissance, and then some um, medieval music. Well, <laughs> certainly Baroque and medieval uh, music has been has come up several times in our conversation. So before we we close out today, I'd like to put my order in, if at all possible, for as Vesta was at Latmost Hill descending, uh, <laughs> at some point in time, an arrangement for Canzone, I think that would just be fantastic. That's a great idea. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> I have not ever sung that piece, but a, a woman who was in my medical group has always been telling me about it. She says, Jill, you've got to do as Vesta, whatever. Which well, it... <laughs> by the mere fact that I can throw that title out, and you know what I'm talking about, means that there's definitely a beer in store for us sometime in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look forward to that. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today, Jill. You're welcome. I love doing it. If you found this content insightful, please subscribe and review on your preferred podcast platform. Funded by the Arts Collaborative, this podcast was produced on site at the studios of the San Luis Obispo County Office of Education. For more information, visit us at www.slocoarch.org. That's S L O C O E A R T S.org.